If you'd like, you can take your Bible and turn to John chapter 21. We're nearing the finish, the close of John's gospel. So we've spent a prolonged season reading through the fourth gospel. And we come this morning to John 21. We'll read verses 15 through 19. Mind your attention, this is the very word of God. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Thus far the reading of God's word. You can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Micah. at the outset of chapter 6 and here continues starting in verse 9 going through verse 16 lend your attention this is God's word the voice of the Lord cries to the city and it is sound wisdom to fear your name hear of the rod and of him who pointed it Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. And their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation, and your inhabitants a hissing, 
and you shall bear the scorn of my people. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Join me in prayer. Father, bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Posture our hearts rightly before it, that with meekness we may receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Enable me to preach the word rightly, to handle it rightly, such that Christ is exalted, such that our hearts are laid bare, such that the word is set forth as a mirror before us, showcasing uh, the sinful propensities of our heart, but leaving us not there, but directing us to the Lord Jesus Christ set forth for sinners. You alone can do these things. You alone can change the heart. You alone can build up in faith and hope and love. And we rejoice that you do these things and delight to do these things. And so we ask that you would do these things even now. For we ask in Christ's name. Amen. In C.S. Lewis's beloved book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we meet a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, whom we are told nearly deserved the dreadful name he bore. Eustace is an insufferable little boy who goes on quite a journey. Perhaps the most surprising development in his journey is that this insufferable little boy becomes a dragon. You don't share my shock and awe? I mean, it's a remarkable development. A boy becomes a dragon. (laughs) How does this happen? How does a little boy transform into a dragon? Well, there were many steps, but the final straw was he fell asleep on the dragon's treasure with greedy and dragonish thoughts. And he woke up a dragon. (laughs) Silly stuff of myth. The idea that greed and treasure and what you think about can turn you into a monster. That's ridiculous. Or maybe it's not. The Lord Jesus Christ tells us that no one can serve God and mammon, earthly wealth. Mammon is not all powerful, but it's pretty powerful. If you love it, you will hate God. That's monstrous. That sounds dragonish to me. Micah is plain, denouncing God's people of old. They had sided with mammon. And in so doing, they had become dragons, full of deceit and cruelty. And so God pronounces their judgment. The wealth that you take by deceit and cruelty shall become to you cruel and deceitful. God's ways are so poetic. They're so fitting. They're so appropriate. You'll eat and you'll eat and you'll eat and you'll never be satisfied. You'll have wine, you'll have oil, but you'll never enjoy these things. That should sound strikingly familiar. Lots of stuff 
but no satisfaction. Incredible riches, but no enjoyment. Does anyone else find it amazing that we live in the most prosperous and comfortable nation and time in human history? And the dominant note is complaining. The rampant dissatisfaction is everywhere on display. It's bewildering. And perhaps we're to see God's hand of judgment in it. Are we in the church vulnerable to this love of stuff and its monstrous effects? A brief survey of the New Testament tells us we are. Paul instructs Timothy to correct the church at Ephesus, charging the rich not to put their hope in the uncertainty of riches. James corrects his church for their constant scheming to gain riches while they neglected the good they should have been doing to one another. The Lord Jesus Christ warns about the word sown among thorns where the deceitfulness of riches chokes out life. And that's not all of them. Yes, it seems that we as the church are vulnerable to this monstrosity. Scripture consistently calls God's people to beware the deceptiveness of earthly wealth. To beware the destructiveness of comfort to the everlasting soul. But it's not just a warning. There's also a reorientation that Scripture delights to extend as the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to consider rightly the true treasure. The everlasting inheritance, the eternal life which He alone can give and delights to give such that the things of this earth take their proper place in the lives of a believer. But it's not just the promise of eternal life which rightly orients us. It's also the promise that the Father who did not spare the only begotten Son will not withhold from us anything that is needful, anything that is necessary, as He promises to care for His people, body and soul. It's in the light of these instructions, these reorientations that we as God's people are positioned to fight our dragonish tendencies when it comes to the love of stuff, the dragon's treasure. So let's consider Micah's plain denouncement of the love of earthly gain under three headings. First, wisdom is necessary to hear. Second, God hates deceitful gain. And third, the curse of futility. First, the necessity of wisdom. Micah opens his oracle with verse 9. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to behold your name. Hear the rod and of him who appointed it. Now I want to draw your attention specifically 
to the wisdom that Micah says is necessary for rightly receiving this word. Wisdom is often set forth as the necessary element to understand the truth of earthly wealth. The truth of the goods of this world variously distributed. We see this in Psalm 49, one of the great psalms wrestling with this tendency as he sets forth his psalm as wisdom and understanding. The same is true of Psalm 37 and Psalm 73, wrestling with this bewildering nature of why the wicked prosper, why the righteous suffer, why it is that one has and another doesn't, why it is that these things are so mysterious. The necessity of wisdom, of careful consideration, but also of divine guidance. Micah presses at the outset of his discourse as that which will lead to right understanding to what's taking place. Because Israel had already fallen prey to simplistic thinking about prosperity, hadn't they? Micah announced to them that all is not well between them and their God. All is not well between the Lord and Israel, he says. And the people respond in essence saying, well, of course it is. Look at how much stuff we have. Clearly, God is pleased with us because we're thriving financially. We are thriving materially. But it's not so easy. It's not as simple as that, is it? There are churches to this very day which are no church at all, or perhaps just barely, (laughs) whose budgets are bursting at the seams. But the gospel is utterly absent. The truth of God is missing entirely. In actuality, if they are churches at all, they're more like the church at Laodicea. In Revelation 3, the Lord Jesus Christ rebukes his church, reprimanding them severely, saying, You say I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's the same deception that Israel of old fell into. Look at how well we're doing materially. Obviously, Jesus is pleased with us. To which Jesus says, you've missed the point entirely. You are spiritually bankrupt. I don't care how big your budget is. It's not prosperity in earthly goods which signals true blessedness. The matter demands wisdom. A penetrating glance according to God's word that looks at the true heart of the matter as it stands before God. For wisdom, when it comes to riches, discerns a counterintuitive world that opens up according to God's word. What does wisdom hear when it comes to earthly riches? First, it's better to have a little bit as righteous than a lot as wicked. That's what Proverbs 16.8 says. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. You can recall the blessed bishop in Les Miserables sleeping the sleep of angels as the criminal Jean Valjean 
stares down at him with a cruel glare as he steals the lone valuable possession that the bishop possesses. How do you put a price on going to bed with a clean conscience? How do you put a price on the haunting look of cruelty that attends the wicked as they take stuff? Second, wisdom says riches... There are riches on earth that cannot be measured in monies of any kind. Proverbs 15, 17. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred dwells. In David Copperfield, you can recall the Peggotty home and its poverty and its joy compared to the cruelty and misery of the Murdstone home with its riches. You could consider the Cratchits in A Christmas Carol and their blessedness in poverty alongside the bitterness of soul that haunted Ebenezer Scrooge and his wealth. I've experienced miserable meals of steak because of strife and magnificent meals of frozen pizza because of harmony. You tell me where the true wealth lies. Third, wisdom says, better altogether is the portion that does not fade, namely the Lord God himself, at whose right hand is abundance and pleasures forevermore. Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God as his people's portion. Go ahead, try to put a price on that. Set up a pile of gold that's going to come out in the balance as superior to God as his people's portion. Wisdom recognizes that we all must die and can take nothing with us. Wisdom knows that the treasure which remains in the face of death is God himself in the Lord Jesus Christ who promises to come for each and every soul for whom he has died and usher them personally into his father's house. Blessed be his name. That is magnificent. Jesse, I'm going to preach that text at your funeral. <laughs> if I outlast you. <laughs> Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.4, We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven. Those descriptors are marvelous, for they can be said of no other treasure, no other wealth. Imperishable, money perishes. Undefiable, money corrupts. Unfading, money fades. And it's kept in heaven, if that weren't enough for you. It's only when the glow of this gift shines properly that the things of earth take their proper aspect, which is strangely dim. All must be brought into the light of our glorious inheritance in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But wisdom discerns one more thing. Wisdom hears one more thing. It says, wealth is not free. Wealth exacts a cost that is oftentimes difficult to discern. For the one who loves it becomes a monster. So we can consider next, God hates dragons. God hates deceitful gain. Micah continues in verses 10 through 12. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Notice that the love of wealth is a contagion. We spend an inordinate amount of time fighting a virus that can only take earthly life. There is a more dangerous virus, and it is materialism. And ironically, we fought the virus with the philosophical presuppositions of materialism, and we did no one any good. The love of wealth is a contagion. It's not just the ruling class who are infected, your rich men. It's the whole population, your inheritance. Paul calls the love of money the root of all kinds of evil. The dark effects of materialism is not contained to one vice. It's not contained to one person. Rather, it spreads its poisonous fruit across the whole community, the whole nation, the whole globe, as the case may be. You can imagine, even in Micah's day, all sorts of people participating in this economy of deception with justifications like, well, this is just the way it is. Or, I don't much like it, but a man has to look out for himself. Or, if I don't take advantage of him, he's going to take advantage of me. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. And just like that, all manner of ugliness gets justified with a shrug of the shoulders. What does the contagion of ugliness look like? Well, it looks very much like C.S. Lewis depicted it. It turns people into dragons. What are the two chief characteristics of the ancient dragon? The serpent of old. Malice and deceit. Hatred and lies. What characterizes people in Micah's text who have set their love on wealth? Violence and lies. Cruelty and deceit. They are imaging the thing that they have set their heart upon. Micah condemns them. He says, the wealth that you have is wicked, unrighteous, and holy, and unholy, and God will not sit idly by. Now we can note that God is not here condemning that wealth which he himself gives freely as a gift to his servants. God has and does entrust his servants with wealth. He did this with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He did this with wealthy women who supported the Lord Jesus financially in his own earthly ministry, as Luke's gospel points out. But make no mistake, even wealth given as gift continues to be dangerous. It still possesses a deceitful quality. 
It still deceives us or threatens to deceive us into thinking that our personal worth as people is somehow bound up with the amount of stuff that we possess. And the darker underbelly of that, the worth of others is bound up with how much they possess. And so we view ourselves wrongly and we view other people wrongly as a result of the deceitfulness. It always, always, always threatens to displace our gaze from the giver of the gifts to the gifts themselves. And we as God's people do well to take heed of the danger. But Micah does here condemn specifically wicked wealth. Wealth gained through wrongdoing. And the specific wrongdoing involves deception. He talks about deceitful scales, deceitful weights. The scam is simple. <laughs> you kind of got to get your mind into how they did buying and selling. The idea is you got two sets of weights. You got a lean weight and you got a fat weight. You've got a lean shekel, a skinny shekel, and a fat shekel. When it comes to what you owe me, out comes the fat shekel. When it comes to how much I must give, out comes the skinny shekel. It's injustice and it's repugnant. It's theft and it's wrong. Now what are some of the indicators that we may be sick in this way? Consider these four observations as a sort of at-home test. The first way is, do you look at stuff like it's going to make you happy? As Calvin reminds us, if you're unhappy in your current house, you're going to be unhappy in your bigger and shinier house. If you're unhappy wearing Old Navy, you're going to be unhappy wearing Lululemon. If you're unhappy with $100, you're going to be unhappy with $100,000 because it's not ultimately about the circumstances. It's about your soul before the living and true God. The second way you might be sick with the contagion of dragons. Do you use the lean weight for what you give and the fat weight for what you demand? Do you do your best at work or do you just phone it in? Do you work with a bad attitude? Do you exaggerate your working hours? This one's tempting because everybody works at home now. Who's going to know? Who's going to see? The Lord sees. <laughs> he sees. You pad the hour sheet, pad the productivity. Have you ever sold something to someone without being completely honest about its true condition? Have you ever been dishonest on your taxes? It's all two sets of weights. It's all dishonest. And it's all repugnant before the Lord. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, As servants of Christ, render service with good will as unto the Lord and not to man. He's talking about all our earthly vocations in that passage. As servants of Christ, render service with a good will. There's your attitude. There's also your excellence. As before the Lord, and not ultimately unto man. You don't work for man. You work for Christ. 
And Paul, everywhere in Ephesians, roots the church's ethic in the astonishing position that we occupy before God. Christ has bought you with His blood. And now He generously loans you out to the world. But you labor for Him. Let that shape the heart with which you labor. Let that shape the excellence with which you labor. For you belong to Christ and you labor for Him ultimately, not for man. Everything else is in congruity with your status as servants of Christ. The third way, do you deprive people of what you owe them in the name of work? We have multiple callings upon us. Every single one of us. We're called to labor with excellence in our earthly vocation. But that is true of all of our earthly vocations. We are also called as mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, sons and daughters, friends and neighbors, brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we have duties and responsibilities to one another in each of those callings. It's easy for us to see our duties in our place of employment. But just as necessary before God are the duties in your other vocations as well. And the constant temptation is to sacrifice those duties on the altar of work. If I'm tempted to do this as a pastor, I know you're tempted to do this in your earthly vocations. None of us are immune from this. The fourth way is that we grow slower and slower to give it cost. The contagion of the love of this world, the dragon-like illness, shows itself in our slowness to be uncomfortable, to heed the call of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has secured our eternal blessedness at ultimate cost to himself. That is the glorious gospel of grace. And with that gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ is now gathering an otherworldly community around himself, an upside-down community around himself that is characterized by the richness of the cross and the upside-down logic it contains. That it, is, that it is in order to live that we die. It is better to give than to get. It is better to serve than to be served. That is the upside-down world that the cross opens up for it. This characterizes our life together. And one of the deceitful features of wealth is that makes us so incredibly comfortable. And that comfort makes us much, much less unwilling to be uncomfortable. Much, much less unwilling to give at cost. That's the terribly sober warning that Jesus himself gives in Mark 10, 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because who would willingly forfeit comfort to become very, very uncomfortable? It's one of the biggest challenges to us in our comfort. We're very comfortable. Are we not so very comfortable? 
That's why I labor to keep the wooden pews. <laughs> so that you remember, this is the time of the cross, not the time of glory. <laughs> we're comfortable. We have a lot. And because we're comfortable, that call to take up cross, give it cost, becomes uniquely difficult. Because being uncomfortable is hard. But the goal of this life, according to Scripture, is not to be comfortable. The goal of this life is to glorify God or to use Micah's language to be with God or to use the language of the New Testament to walk by faith wherever the Lord Jesus Christ leads us. To be wherever He calls us to be, knowing that He is the true treasure. That He is everlasting and eternal life. Are you sick? To some degree you are. May God show it to you. And then may he apply the glorious balm of the gospel to turn you from that which fades to that which never will. Because the deceitfulness of riches does not stop here. Because God promises the curse of futility upon all who put their hope in riches. So we can consider last the curse of futility. Michael clo- Micah closes preaching. Michael also closes, but Micah closes preaching. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat and not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. These are the futility curses, and they are terrifying. But mark their fittingness. Mark their dark beauty and appropriateness. You took wealth by deceit, therefore wealth shall become deceitful to you in its darkest and most powerful aspect. You eat thinking that somehow you're going to reach fullness and satisfaction, but you never will. In fact, it's going to leave a more intense ache and hunger than before you started. You work thinking that you'll have, but you never do. Because even what you gain, I'm going to force you to watch be destroyed as I give it to the sword. The promise that you hear wealth making, you'll be satisfied if you get. You'll be satisfied if you get will always ever be a promise it doesn't deliver. In fact, it will be worse than that. You're going to feel the dark ache of it. Notice it's God's justice. He profiles that in the text. He says, as for me, this is what I'm going to do. This is the grievous blow with which I'm going to strike you. Make no mistake about who's doing this. It's me. In righteousness and holiness and justice, in this raging futility behind our constant discontent, our relentless dissatisfaction, we see God's righteousness and justice on display to all who have boasted in riches. There's a recent film by the Cohen brothers, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Scraggs, doesn't matter. I'll summarize it for you. It's not like Tolstoy where I just assume you've read it. This is something far inferior. 
The film tells the story of an old prospector in the 1800s. And this old man travels into the beauty and the danger of the California frontier where no one's been before. He's utterly alone for days and days and he works tirelessly for weeks, panning, angling, digging, shifting, sleeping, waking, repeating. It's brutal. He finds a piece of gold here and a piece of gold there and he's looking for the source. And he sleeps once more knowing that he's on the right trail. He's close. And then lo and behold, the next day he finds it. The hole he opens reveals a vast treasure. Finally, all of his labors, all of his work, all of his patience pays off and a man sneaks up behind him and shoots him in the back and he falls into the hole. Futility. And you watch the scene. I won't tell you how it ends. You watch the scene and you scream, No! You villain! You thief! That's injustice of the highest order! He worked for it! How dare you! And in one sense you're right, but in a deeper sense you're wrong. God says, Justice. God says, that's fair. That's right for all who set their hope on earthly riches. For human beings, everlasting man, to use that glorious phrase by G.K. Chesterton, made in the image of God to debase themselves by setting their heart upon gold. what fades. It's not just pitiful. It's not just wretched. It's not just tragic. It's wrong. And that's how Micah ends. In verse 16, he takes a shift, or it feels like it. He says, you vigorously keep the statutes of Omri and Ahab, those chief villains of the kingdom of the north, known for their idolatry and their greed and their treachery. And those two things, idolatry and greed, are intimately bound up. Why does he close with verse 16? Because the love of wealth and idolatry go hand in hand, just as our Lord said. (laughs) You can't love mammon and not hate God. And so it's not just utterly inappropriate for an everlasting soul to set its faculties and desires upon that which is not everlasting. It is a violation of God's holy law and order. And so he says, judgment, justice, futility, as heartbreaking as that old prospector. Is there any hope? Should I just leave it there? I'm tempted to, because that's where Micah kind of leaves it, but there is hope. But we ask, who can save us from such futility? And we've been hinting at it all along the way. Micah does end tantalizingly. At the end of verse 16, he talks about Jerusalem bearing the scorn of my people. There's two layers of hope there. One, the fact that God continues to call these sinners my people. Praise His great kindness and grace for their tiny dragons. And yet, 
he does not let them go. Second, he says Jerusalem is going to bear the sin. Jerusalem is going to bear the scorn. And in a sense, they did. But only in a sense. When Nebuchadnezzar came in 586 and destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, destroyed the palace, the futility curses were realized in part. Everything that they had labored for, they watched disappear. And that was right. But that wasn't the full discharge of that curse, was it? The one upon whom the full curse fell was the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who bore the sins of God's people to free them from their love affair with this world and to secure for them a place at the right hand where He is now seated, where there are treasures forevermore. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who can call and say truthfully, do not work for the food that perishes. Because you're going to eat, and you're going to eat, and you're going to eat, and you're never going to be satisfied. Rather, labor for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man gives to you. He gives it. He gives it freely. And He can give it freely because He bought it at cost, standing in the stead of sinners, shedding His blood. To make us children. There's only one food that will satisfy. There's only one drink that will satisfy. There's only one treasure that will not ultimately fade. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who gives himself freely to dragons. To make them real human beings. To make them the image and likeness of the Father. In the end, Eustace meets Aslan. And it is a painful process, the undragoning of the lad. <laughs> and it's a work that only the great king can do. But blessed be his name that he is pleased to do this work, making children out of monsters. May our lives continue to reflect this glorious reality until he returns and we become like him in every way. For we will finally see him as he is. Let's pray. Sanctify us by your word, O Lord. Your word is truth. Press it upon our hearts as only you can. For we are needy and weak. And it is only with great difficulty. Indeed, it is only by the ministry which Christ promises that we glimpse the truth of these things. We ask that you would do this in Christ's name. Amen.